WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. As a science communicator, something I've noticed even before the pandemic is that people don't always want to listen to the science. They may have a lot of hesitancy or they'll be skeptical about the research and the findings. Whenever the pandemic began, a lot of science communicators were trying to find ways to convince people to take the COVID-19 vaccine and to show them why the vaccine was safe. Today to talk to us more about them, we're here with Gregory Marshall. Hi, Gregory. Thanks for joining us today. Can you tell us more about yourself and your research? Hi, so I'm a senior here at MSU, but I grew up in the state of Wyoming in a small town. It's a small mining town, Green River, Wyoming. And my older brother attended the University of Wyoming for his undergraduate. He was also an economics major. And he collected a bunch of data with a professor there, Dr. Mariah Emke, on vaccine hesitancy in the state of Wyoming. And so I got my start on this research project my junior year when basically they had incomplete data that I had offered to put the legwork in to get this into a finished format to analyze and then create some findings. And so I have, in the future, I have ambitions to become an economist. I'll be working at the Federal Reserve Board of Governors as a research assistant upon graduation in May. And I think a key area of economics that has a lot of potential in the future is understanding the way people think. And one application of that is something that seems unrelated to economics, which is vaccine hesitancy. And so this is the passion that drives my research interest in vaccine hesitancy and will likely influence me in the future. It's nice to meet you, Greg, and congratulations on this new position that you're pursuing. Let's talk a little bit about what vaccine hesitancy is. First of all, how are you defining it? Is it where a person just never gets a vaccine? Is it the feeling that a person doesn't want the vaccine but gets it? Let's unpack that a little bit there. So vaccine hesitancy is the general delaying of getting a vaccine for yourself or someone who's in your care in the case of parents even though a vaccine is readily available. So vaccine hesitancy does not deal with things like access issues or maybe someone's too busy to get vaccinated. Instead, vaccine hesitancy is looking more like either people who outright refuse a vaccine, even though it's readily available, or if they may be uncertain about the effects, so they delay something like a childhood vaccine for their child for several months something like that. So they don't follow the recommended schedule of vaccines. So that's what we're dealing with when we talk about vaccine hesitancy. Vaccine hesitancy can include people who do get vaccines so long as there is some sort of delaying in the process of getting a vaccine. So they do not follow the CDC guidelines for getting a vaccine, even if they end up getting it. So for example, someone who waited an extra year after the COVID vaccines came out to get their vaccine, would have still exhibited uh, vaccine hesitancy. Yeah, I know some people that were hesitant about taking the vaccine. There were different reasons why they actually ended up getting the vaccine. Did you investigate what convinced people to get the vaccine later on? 
Vaccine hesitancy is a very complicated topic that has a variety of different factors. And the research that I did here at MSU was addressing a very specific issue dealing with risk preferences and ambiguity aversion, which we'll get to in a sec, I'm sure. But there are a ton of different reasons why people can get vaccinated from just a general demographic characteristics. For example, older people tend to get be a little bit more vaccine hesitant or people, education status or religious status all can influence your vaccine hesitancy. Also political ideologies and beliefs about the, the healthcare system all influence whether or not someone's more likely to be vaccine hesitant or not. My research deals with a very small subset of what influences vaccine hesitancy, but is sort of trying to understand why public communication, like why vaccine hesitancy is still a problem, why the CDC's communication strategies have failed, why things like mass media campaigns, advertisements, all can't persuade the large majority of people to get vaccinated for. And in the case of my research, it's on influenza, but it has implications for other issues like COVID and uh, like childhood vaccines. Well, thanks for making that clarification. I bet a lot of people who are starting to listen to this episode may have thought that we were actually talking about COVID, when in reality, we're actually referring to the influenza vaccine. What is the interest in studying that vaccine hesitancy when it comes to the influenza vaccine? Is it because of things like how it's a seasonal vaccine or what is going on in there? Influenza in particular is a very interesting topic for a couple of reasons. The first is that there are influenza outbreaks pretty much every year. And a lot of these outbreaks have preventable costs. These costs do add up every year. The reason why you don't get a lot of publicity about like things like hospitalizations for influenza is because it's something that happens every year. It's not something new, like in the case of the coronavirus. It's also worth noting that future pandemics could easily be triggered by a, a more contagious or more deadly influenza strain. And so the annual influenza vaccine every year is basically your first line of defense against a potential future pandemic. The final reason that it's worth discussing is that in rural communities specifically, the cost associated with influenza itself is higher when these communities don't have things like easy access to hospitals, high quality health care. They also tend to have higher rates of obesity and that sort of thing. And so rural communities are particularly damaged by influenza, making this a really important topic of study. Yeah, that's true. There really is so many studies out there that are talking about how influenza can evolve. And for example, look at the avian flu virus right now. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that everyone can get the flu vaccine no matter what age they are. What specific demographics were you surveying or talking to for this study? The flu vaccine is recommended for everyone older the ages of six months. But the real focus is that the influenza virus is particularly deadly for very young children. And so the topic of our study deals with parents with children under the age of five living in rural Wyoming. Remember, rural communities are worst impacted by the flu, and they also have lower vaccination rates. Only in, in the United States in the most recent flu influenza season, so 2020-2021, only 58.6% of children in the U.S. received the flu vaccine, and in Wyoming, it was only 46%. So the flu problem is very severe in rural areas like Wyoming, and addressing vaccine hesitancy as it pertains to influenza is a very strong public health priority going forward. One thing I struggle with is trying to collect survey responses from people to try and understand how different mechanisms play in a role when it comes to the study that I'm performing. In your case, it's trying to understand vaccine hesitancy. Like you had mentioned, this topic is really complicated. 
How were you able to convince people to participate in a study like this? So the the problem with surveys is well documented. In the case of vaccine hesitancy, it is also very difficult to get beyond just asking questions and understanding how economic topics can influence that, that, that the thinking behind the vaccine hesitancy. So instead of doing just a survey, we recruited 198 parents to participate in in-person experiments in four locations across Wyoming. Each of these parents had the, were paid a, a show-up fee and then also had the opportunity to win additional money through the games that they played as part of our experiment. And then they also had things like childcare services provided to them and that sort of thing. And so the goal was to get these parents in an environment where we can get a better understanding of the way that they process information beyond just a survey setting. And then we did administer a survey in addition to having them participate in economic experiments. Well, Gregory, we don't really have many economic students here on the Sci-Files. Can you maybe elaborate more on economic experiments, please? And more particularly with the example of your research? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. The economics for a long time was just modeling rational behavior with a bunch of different variables in the macro economy. And in the last decade or two decades, there's been this surge in focus on behavioral economics. And the basic idea of behavioral economics is that not everyone is a rational actor. And so psychological biases can influence outcomes And the best way to understand that is through using economic tools of analysis. And so this is the broader umbrella that the the experiment that I participated in was under. And so to get an understanding of these psychological biases, you need to bring people in and have them understand, have them participate in economic games. The game that we had them play was to understand how risky, what their risk preferences are. If they're really risk averse, that means that they don't want to play gambles. They want to play it safe. They want to make sure that if they have the opportunity to earn any money as a guarantee, they would take that over having the possibility of having huge swings in their potential revenue. If they're less risk averse or more risk seeking, then it's obviously the opposite. And that was one half of the study that I ended up pushing out as part of this presentation, this whole project. This reminds me of a lot of war games that are played when it comes to things such as national security. In other words, it's kind of like Monopoly vaccine hesitancy style. Yeah, you know, you, you can find a lot of these behavioral economics topics every day in your life. This A lot of the games that are being developed as part of experimental economics are basically trying to model the things that people do every single day that don't necessarily abide to the traditional model that economists use, which is that everyone's a super rational actor. And that that makes this sort of topic of study very interesting. So the second half of the project dealt with ambiguity aversion. Ambiguity aversion deals with perceptions of uncertainty. Vaccines, generally speaking, are safe and effective, particularly for influenza. And that's not questioning that isn't really the focus of our research. Instead, we are interested in the role that people that the role that people who believe there's uncertainty in those payoffs have in their ultimate vaccine decision. So if someone believes that the risks associated with vaccines are less known, like there's no research on them, they don't really know what they are. Scientists don't know what they are either. If they believe that narrative more than they believe that like the risks of diseases are unknown, 
we sort of we we got survey questions that asked these two topics and then wait had them weigh these two questions so if they believed that the risks of the vaccines were less known than the risks of diseases we wanted to see if they were less likely to vaccinate and what other variables were correlated or had relationships with this perceived uncertainty this ambiguity aversion one thing that makes games really attractive to play is the fact that there's usually a lot of different options that a person can choose from in order to make a decision on how to move forward in the game. How do you control the number of metrics in these economic experiments to avoid having an infinitely large possibility of choices that could then lead to a shallowing out of the results that you would obtain? So the simple reality of economic analysis generally beyond experimental economics is that it is impossible to perfectly replicate the real life settings, real life decisions in a lab. And so the best we can do is create games that are feasible and then try to control for as many other characteristics that might be correlated, that might influence uh, behavior out in the real world. So in the case of the risk preferences metric, we had people choose one of six gambles with real monetary payoffs. Each of these gambles had a 50-50 chance of occurring. One of the gambles was a guaranteed $7, and then each of them became more risky. In other words, the, the difference between the winning a better payoff and the lower payout was increasing. The most risky gamble had an upper payoff of $30 and a lower payoff of $0. Now, this isn't a perfect replication of risk preferences broadly. However, this has been established in previous research to be a correlate among uh, broader risk preferences. And of course, there's going to be an infinite amount of criticism, an infinite amount of research on these, you know, these risk preferences experiments. And so we just have to take proxies and then not overemphasize the results as if they occurred in the real world. In the case of our ambiguity aversion metric, that actually came from the survey. We asked our participants on a Likert scale of one to five. And the problem with the Likert scale is that everyone's scale is different. There's no definition of what a three means when you're talking about perceived uncertainty. So by weighting that against the perceived uncertainty of diseases, we're able to credit, essentially create an anchor that allowed us to do more analysis. Those episode is coming to an end, Gregory. I would really like some clarification before we go. Can you reiterate to me, please, how that example you just gave was specifically worked towards the influenza vaccine hesitancy? So on that topic, the key finding is that people who perceive more uncertainty in vaccine risks than disease risks tend to vaccinate less. And the interesting finding is that um, after controlling for people's trust in the healthcare system, this finding still existed. So think about a gamble. You have potential payoffs, you have potential losses, just like if you play a hand of blackjack. Well, if you can apply that to the vaccine narrative, which is if you get a shot, you have the benefits of not getting sick, but you could also get a side effect. Some of these side effects are mild, like just getting a minor cold for like 24 hours. And then there are perceptions that there's the probability of getting very severe side effects, which tend to be very overweighted by vaccine hesitant people. And then there's also people who believe that those payoffs are uncertain. So we're basically trying to understand how people evaluate the gamble of the vaccine. And a lot of people have argued that the reason why people believe there's uncertainty in the vaccine decision is because they don't trust the healthcare system broadly. And what we found is that influenza vaccines should be treated differently 
than just broader trust in the healthcare system. Like someone's trust in their doctor to give them proper medical right, advice won't change necessarily what their perceptions are about whether or not we have properly studied and understand the impacts of taking a vaccine. And that's the key finding of our research. Well, thanks for sharing that with us, Greg. People are going to make whatever decision they're going to make, and that's up to them at the end of the day. Thanks for coming to talk to us about your work on vaccine hesitancy this morning on The Sci-Files with us. Congratulations on your graduation and good luck on the next phase of your life. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on The Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.